Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. Nice. Indirect lighting. All right. Hello, world. Welcome to my live stream. Some of you might remember that a couple weeks ago, I did a live stream on my friend here, Jeffrey Miller's new YouTube channel. We talked about the psychology of Antifa, and he mostly kind of interviewed me about that, and that was on his channel. So now we're going to do the same thing, but with a live stream on my channel. So today we're going to be talking in particular about deep fakes and the future of their social and political implications, the future of what is now colloquially known as fake news. And we here are basically reporting to you from 2049 with our advanced AR goggles on. Uh, just kidding. These are actually snowboard goggles, uh, but they look pretty cool, right? And it's not impossible to imagine that when AR technology gets, you know, heated up, it might look something like this. Hopefully it's a little bit more elegant than this. All right, Jeffrey, I think you can remove your, that. those are actual uh, oh, yeah. VR goggles, Where am I? right? This is an Oculus Go, and it's pretty good, and it's only about 200 bucks. And, yeah, we're going to talk about deep fakes, but also augmented reality. So this is virtual reality. You can't see when these are on, which is why I was acting like a dumbass. But augmented reality, there's going to be cameras pointing out, and you'll be able to integrate the information about the real world with digital information overlaid on it. So that's that's the idea. Right. So uh, if you have any questions about any of the stuff we're talking about, the live chat is open. So please do feel free to comment. We're looking at it on a screen right here and then we'll be monitoring it for good questions and comments. And we'll try to, uh, you know, integrate those into our conversation real quick. Let me also just say that if you're here for the first time, please do subscribe to the channel. I do live streams like this on, on related topics all the time. If you're interested in talking about this kind of stuff, but you don't really have people in real life to talk about this with, I do also have a, I think, fairly thriving Discord server with a lot of interesting, smart people who like to talk about this stuff. So yeah, if you want to talk about this stuff with me and others, there's a link in the show notes below uh, that'll let you basically sign up to be in the Discord server and then I'll get back to you. So yeah, that's that. And uh, oh, as always, huge thanks to my patrons. All this stuff that I do is basically supported by my audience. So just want to always be grateful for that and, and shout them out. Thank you, patrons. Uh, oh, actually, Jeffrey is a very modest man, so he doesn't like to toot his own horn, but I'm going to toot it for him. Jeffrey has a uh, book that's out or coming out soon, uh, a self-published independent ebook on virtue signaling. It's a bunch of essays he's written over the years, and there's some really good stuff in there. So that's coming out on August 1st is the is the planned release date, and it's available for pre-order now. So yeah, check it out in the show notes below. You can pre-order it five right bucks. now if you want to. It's only five bucks. Yeah. And uh, if you'd like the conversation we have today, you can get more of that in Jeffrey's sweet, sweet text. All right, Ben, anything from you? Uh, yeah, I'm not finding the screen sharing option. Oh, yeah. But besides that, it looks Okay, cool. we'll roll with it. Yeah, guys, let us know if the, yeah. the audio and visual is working all right, because yes. we're doing a slightly new 
piece of software for live streaming. Today. Yeah, uh, YouTube is phasing out the old live streaming system that they had for in favor of a new one. So we're starting the new one now, but I think it might be a little buggy. And also we just have to figure out how it works. So, uh, all right, we got Greg Gregory saying audio is good. Sounds all right. Hello, pseudo poster and everyone else hanging out. Welcome. So yeah, let's just get right into it then. So deep fakes, why don't we first just, for anyone who doesn't know what the frick a deep fake is, we'll just go over the basic technology and we'll talk a little bit about maybe what's expected in the near, in, in the immediate future on deep fake technology. So I don't know how you would describe it, but I think that probably the simplest way to describe deep fakes is pretty self-explanatory, right? It's uh, the ability to use various computerized technologies to create fake videos and audio of other people saying or doing things that in fact they've never said or done but we call them deep fakes because the technology to produce these fakes is getting increasingly uncannily powerful to the degree that very soon it will be utterly impossible to distinguish between a fake piece of audio or video of someone saying or doing something and the authentic video or audio of what they've actually said and done so this is the horizon that we're approaching this is what deep fakes refer to would you add anything to that as a basic description of the what's essentially at stake in this technology? Yeah, just that, you know, anybody who's a public profile of any sort where there's multiple photos of them and especially video of them, it's possible to um, capture all of that, integrate it into a digital model of what their face looks like, what their body looks like, even how they move, how they sound, how they talk. And in a computer, you can model all that and then you can do anything with it that um, Hollywood can do with CGI in terms of animation. So you could literally type in text that can be translated into words that come out of that person's uh, digital mouth in ways that sound totally compelling, or you could animate them in certain ways. So far, the killer app for deepfakes, of course, as with most tech, has been porn. So you take a celebrity face, you do a 3D model of it, you add it to, to a traditional porn star's body, and then you can have the illusion that some celebrity is, is naked and having sex, right? And those aren't very good yet, I've heard, but they're going to get better and better as we go along. Here for this live stream, we're going to focus more on the kind of social and political broader um, applications of deep fakes and AR, um, particularly what happens when you can do this stuff really well for uh, public figures, political figures, and create, let's say, a campaign ad that's fake, right, where they're saying something that most people in the country would really disagree with, but which is completely compelling emotionally mm. and psychologically. And in your opinion, where do you say we're at currently in terms of the, the quality of these deep fakes? In my view, we're, it seems that we're basically on the cusp of it being utterly indistinguishable from real audio or video. Maybe not quite there yet, but I mean, some of the more famous ones that you might've seen, like someone brings it up in the chat, there was one of a synthesized voice of Joe Rogan. There have been a few of Nicolas Cage. Some of them I think actually are already damn close to indistinguishable, especially the audio. I think the video, you can kind of see a little bit, uh, you can see traces of manipulation, but some of, some of the audio, it seems utterly indistinguishable. And especially for certain types of people, like low information voters, we call them, or just people who aren't paying that much attention or aren't that discriminating. You know, this does vary. People's ability to discriminate does vary. So you can imagine that already today, even though you, when you look at some of these deep fakes, 
although you you know if you're discriminating you can see there it's not quite perfect i would say we're already at the point where this technology is is uh serviceable for basically yeah, manipulating I mean, at least large numbers of minds you could you could certainly fool some of the people some of the time at the moment and i think uh, my prediction is within one to five years you'll have uh video deep fakes that can fool like 80 90 percent of the people pretty reliably and the, the, the crucial thing is going to be where somebody might know rationally, oh, it's a deep fake. But where their emotional brain is saying, oh, but she or he really seems to have said this terrible, offensive thing that, 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 that means I can't really get behind them as a candidate, mm-hmm. right? Or I'm going to be completely outraged by this. So it doesn't have to be 100% good at, at faking you out at the rational level. These things might have a huge political impact, even if you kind of consciously know it might be a deep fake, but it still kind of worms its way into your your subconscious. Right. So you're an evolutionary psychologist. And why don't we unpack a little bit more deeply what the underlying psychological mechanisms that make deep fakes extremely difficult to resist? Because I know you have a story about this related to basically psychology of person perception. Could you could you unpack a, that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so in social psychology, the concept of person perception is how we integrate information about a person, including all of their traits and their beliefs and their attitudes based on their behavior, their their audio and video input, right, to our brains. And this has been studied for decades. And the the trouble is we evolved in these small-scale hunter-gatherer societies where there was no digital technology, there were no deep fakes. If you see someone sitting right in front of you saying something, like it's a hundred percent likely that that is that person saying that thing. So there's an immediacy to um, video deep fakes that goes far beyond what you would get in a, let's say a journalist misquoting someone in print, right? Mm. If you have a print misquote by a journalist, it's not that compelling. It's mm. not that visceral. You can kind of rationally override uh, with the knowledge that, oh, that's that's a misattribution. That's a fake quote. That's that's fake news. The problem with deep fakes is it's going to go straight into our social primate brain, and it's going to be incredibly hard to override the information that you're getting. And maybe we should give a few examples of how this might play out, like, if, for example, you really wanted to take down Trump or take down Elizabeth Warren or, you know, destroy some candidate's electability, what kind of stuff could you could you do? Mm. Right? You could have a deep fake of Elizabeth Warren screaming the N-word at someone. <laughs> it would only need to be like three seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And even if a few weeks later everyone realizes it's a fake, it's a, it's a deep fake, what you're saying is that that initial implanting in the mind of all the people who hear it is going to be powerful and visceral in a way that you can't really update away from. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. And bear in mind, you you can't, you're not limited to doing this to the current day, day Elizabeth Warren. You could take Mm. her from like 30 years ago because there's enough photographic and video evidence, you know, of most of these candidates back in, in time, particularly Trump. And you could show kind of a deep fake of 
age 30 Trump misbehaving in some way. That's a good point also, because that lets you kind of get around some of the imperfections, Mm -hmm. right? So everyone knows really well what Elizabeth Warren sounds like and looks like right now, because there's so much good video of her, right? But what exactly she sounded like when she was an 18 year old, there's much less of that, right? So people don't really know. So that means if you did a deep fake of that, you are more likely to get away with it. Yeah. And you could composite together these candidates interacting with other people that they've never even met. Um, and and that can be embarrassing. You, you know, there might even be this overlap between deep fake porn and and deep fake like political issues, where oh here's some candidate misbehaving sexually with someone. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, with a kid. It could be with someone they're not married to. It could be some kind of kinky BDSM stuff. It like anything is anything that Hollywood CGI can do will become um, something that anybody with a decent computer can mm-hmm. do pretty soon. Now, this will take some technical skills. Um, not everybody will be able to do it, but if enough people can do it, meaning hundreds of thousands, um, you know, anybody who was able to make memes in 2016 soon we'll be able to make pretty credible deep fakes, I think. Mm. So this stickiness of perception that you're talking about, you see interesting similarities in the literature, the political science literature is on things like fact checking. I mean, if you look at this literature, which is basically trying to figure out, can you correct people's errors, right? If someone is exposed to a false piece of information, can you then give them true information and how does that work? What are the conditions under which that most effectively works? That political science literature is, uh, very dismal. It's, it's very depressing. I mean, yeah. it's just like what you're saying. It's really hard. It's to very hard. Yeah. Right. So I would be curious from your perspective as a evolutionary psychologist, I'm sure we have some quite smart and nerdy people in the room who would be game to go a little bit deeper. Could you tell us a little bit more deeply, like what are, what is the underlying mechanism that makes it so hard for people to update after those initial impressions? Yeah, so political science has found it's hard for people to update. Same thing you find in social and cognitive psychology. You give somebody fake information, and then later you tell them, sorry, that was fake. You might think, okay, rationally, you should be able to wipe the slate clean and go back to your initial sort of Bayesian priors, your initial assumptions. But people can't do that very easily. It's really hard to kind of rewind the history of what you've learned and, and, and reach that sort of um, virginal state of, of innocence. And so what is the evolutionary basis for that? Is it just simply that there's more kind of adaptive benefits from having those powerful initial impressions and be, being wrong on them is, is somehow not that significant? How, how does selection work on that? I think there's a couple of things going on. One is just in terms of like information theory, in nature, most information has some validity to it. So if you're exposed to some cue that says this is an opportunity or a threat, you know, this is a good mate, a bad mate, this is a, um, a liar or a cheat or, or an honest um, ally or companion, you always want to update a little bit in the direction of that information mm-hmm. and assume that it's got some validity to it. The second thing is a um, is an issue of deception, Right which is that if somebody uh, says something kind of impulsively or they're under some psychoactive drug influence, like they're a little tipsy and they blurt out something, right? Of course, later 
they will try to walk that back and try to get you to update in the direction of their kind of preferred um, image of them that they would like you to have. But you should resist that mm -hmm. rationally. You should have some sales resistance to their sort of post hoc, you know, rationalization of what they said. So I think there's a social psychology to this and there is a sort of Bayesian information theory. And together that means, you know, if you're exposed to some compelling deep fake of Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie Sanders or whatever doing something super embarrassing, it'll be very hard then to listen mm -hmm. to their press conference, right? Disavowing that fake and 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 completely updating. Mm, okay. And so maybe we can speculate on some of the scenarios we expect in the not too distant future. You know, when we kind of hang around the house and, and talk about these sorts of things, we over the past few days, we've been speculating on some interesting scenarios. Maybe we should kind of go over those. So especially like, you know, in a couple of years when we're all walking around with goggles like this or whatever it happens to look like, um, what is it going to look like when deep fakes not only become possible, but they start getting integrated with these other kind of consumer technologies coming down the pike. Yeah. I haven't seen people write about this a whole lot, but of course, once you get augmented reality, what that means is you're, you're wearing glasses that also have cameras pointed outwards and, and audio recording. So, and these will be inconspicuous. They'll be, you know, no more noticeable than my glasses are. Mm -hmm. You can easily put an HD camera right. in glasses like this. And, and we might have a link later to an Amazon product that, that shows that. So everybody will be walking around with glasses or eventually contacts that are HD recording devices. And they can basically sample the video and audio appearance of everybody in public they get exposed to. You know, mm -hmm. um, that can include your family and your friends and your colleagues, but it could also include strangers. Combine that with face recognition technology, like China is developing, where basically all, all 1.3 billion people in China are having their faces mapped so the Chinese government can kind of track them through video. Combine that with deep fakes, and it means pretty soon anybody who shows up in public will be susceptible to being sampled by anybody else who has an AR you know, headset and turned into a deep fake for any purposes that anybody wants. Uh, and what that, and, and then of course they could share that on social media. They could either augment or destroy your reputation. And so this is not just an issue with political figures. I think it's an also, it's also a, a fundamental kind of privacy and reputational issue for everybody. Right. It's kind of interesting to reflect on how this is going to pan out in terms of just the long run overall effects on, on the truthfulness of, of culture. Because on the one hand, it's easy to imagine that with the rise of deep fakes, all of a sudden everything is just going to be lies, right? No one's going to be able to believe anything. And everything you're going to see in the media is just going to be made up. But it's also easy to see that to the degree that happens, that's going to significantly incentivize kind of authenticity verification technologies also, mm -hmm. right? So it's not actually obvious that the rise of deep fakes is going to be, uh, you know, really deleterious for collective efforts to verify and, and, and seek the truth. It could actually stimulate more and more investment in this, right? Because let's say you're Elizabeth Warren and you're, you, you, you have reason to believe that there are going to be deep fakes about you coming out. Mm -hmm. Well, 
suddenly it's in your interest to put a lot of time and energy into figuring out how you can separate the wheat from the chaff from the real videos you put out from the, the ones you don't. And probably the biggest candidate for doing this, I think a lot of people think would be something like blockchain, yeah. which allows, um, you know, this kind of distributed uh, kind of irreversible, unmanipulatable kind of uh, basically shared reality register. Yeah. Have you given much thought to that? Or uh, do you have any reflections on basically this kind of like dialectic between the, mm-hmm. the ease with which we're able to produce falsities and stimulating the, the necessity to, actually become better and better at verifying the truth. Yeah, I, I think the issue is at equilibrium in the long run, right, we will figure out some method for trying to, you know, restore the credibility of, of digital reality. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's blockchain, maybe it's some other technologies, maybe just everybody will level up their skepticism mm-hmm. about what they're seeing. But I think there will be a period mm-hmm. of, a few years upwards to maybe a whole generation where people really don't have the skills to do this very well mm. and where deep fakes could be kind of dispositive and, and right, you know, completely dominant in terms of political life or financial life, social life, people's relationships, etc. And I think that's sort of the danger zone. Mm. where the deep fake technology is going to outstrip both our skepticism as individuals and the sort of fact-checking technology or the blockchain or whatever. Right. So it's so, that short run period when yeah. it first becomes indistinguishable from reality, that's going to be the most dangerous you think. Yeah. Like I think we'll start to see deep fakes having an influence in 2020 election. I think the 2024 election might be, absolutely dominated by deep fakes in a way that 2016 was dominated by memes, but in, a, in an even more powerful way. Mm. And then I think the sort of 10 years after that will be a period of kind of dizzying digital chaos. Right. Where nobody's sure what to trust. Right. So one of my questions that I always think about is why is this technology not already being used? Because as we've discussed it's not quite widely available in a truly indistinguishable way, a way that's indistinguishable from, from reality. But, you know, you got a few proper data scientists in your, in your lab or your campaign team, and you set them up with some, with some time and, you know, computing power. And the deepfakes you can already make are pretty damn good. And especially if you're a little, just slightly creative about it, like, for instance, what we were talking about before, uh, you know, if you wanted to do something about Elizabeth Warren doing something ridiculous, you know, there are creative ways you can make it much more convincing, like doing it from her past or something like that, where people don't have as reliable reference points. So there are many cases, in other words, that you can imagine where political actors, economic actors, a variety of actors could be using this technology to, you know, advance themselves in many ways, right? So it's kind of interesting why it hasn't, why you're not quite seeing it take hold in malicious ways yet. Do you have any read on that? I suspect that among, you know, political um, candidates that this, we haven't really had examples of deep fakes that really have an impact that affords a lot of people. Right. I think once that starts to happen, you'll probably get a period of all the candidates kind of tacitly agreeing to play nice. Right. And there will be kind of a mutually assured destruction where it's like we could, we're going deep fake is going to be the new going negative. Right. And where each candidate kind of knows 
if my election team distributes a bunch of deep fakes, oh shit, the opposing team will do that and that'll be just bad and nobody will be able to get their messaging out, et cetera. But there will no doubt come a time when even if the sort of official um, candidacy team doesn't do that, right, there will be supporters and auxiliaries and sort of activist journalists who have this capability Mm -hmm. and they'll release it whether or not the candidate themselves wants to destroy the other candidate. Mm. And I think that's where you're going to see the dangers coming from, just like with the memes, right? It's not like Trump's campaign itself was releasing a bunch of memes in 2016. It's just avid Trump supporters did that. And the other side did it. And uh, I think that's, that's kind of the, the, short to medium term future of this. Right. You know, another implication people don't think so much about is positive applications of deep fakes to not go negative necessarily, but to just create good content for yourself. <clears throat> you know, it's all we often tend to imagine or assume that the the main role of deep fakes is going to be to do malicious damage to some enemy. But you can imagine a political candidate organizing a, a team of data scientists right now to generate deep fakes of themselves doing cool stuff. Right. And even in a way that's not so, you know, it doesn't even need to be disingenuous or manipulative. You could just create, you know, instead of going on the podcast tour, right. And doing all these different podcasts, which you actually have to do with your physical body, which is costly. And, uh, you know, you have finite resources. You could make a bunch of deep fakes of you doing other people's podcasts or something like this that you've never necessarily done. You could do deep fakes of you giving presentations at some, you know, at a variety of different venues. Right. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily be lying. You're just creating content. You're, you're creating kind of uh, creative, artistic content to proliferate your ability to appear and to speak and to communicate. That's kind of interesting. Right. Because that's not so malicious. Like that's not in bad taste even like you couldn't really criticize that necessarily. I, I don't think. Um, so I wonder if there's this kind of unexploited gap right now, which is already currently available where there's a, if a political, if one of the candidates, for instance, in the Democratic Party or whatever, wanted to get really sophisticated, someone like, I don't know, Andrew Yang, who's kind of more interested in, probably more familiar with these types of technologies than the other candidates. I really do think there's actually a, an unexploited gap currently available where you could actually, it would be worth your while to spend a good chunk of change to get a bunch of data scientists together to start actually using this deep fake, this deep fake technology in creative ways that doesn't necessarily need to be shady or, or fraudulent. Yeah, it could be done in a kind of lighthearted, playful way. Like here's Andrew Yang summiting Everest. Here he is water skiing. Here he is with the body of Conan the Barbarian, like choking out the MMA heavyweight champ. (laughs) There's all kinds of possibilities where the candidate could go at the bottom of the screen. Caution, this is totally fake. But where people would go, oh my God, but he has the the fighting spirit of so-and-so and the summiting spirit of whoever. And I I think we will see campaign ads like that, that, that exploit exactly this ability. Right. Right. So it'll be interesting to see when that happens and, and how it plays out. I mean, it sounds like you kind of agree that it's already available, but there's this weird kind of delay or hesitation that people have. But I think if we're right, yeah, that it's there for the taking, but people are just not quite, you know, they quite, they haven't quite realized it yet, or they're, everyone's kind of, hesitant, perhaps because it seems like shady, you know, well, if it's there, then you have to take it basically because Mm -hmm. someone, if if someone takes it before you, then you're, you're, you're out of the, you're out of the race. 
Right. So I wonder, I wonder and, if, and, and it could be as subtle as just a candidate's giving a talk, right. And most people beyond the 10th row back can't actually see their face. So there's a huge screen and you could have real time video perfection of the candidate to make them just look a little bit better or to present kind of their best right. digital self for the rest of the crowd. Um, or at least to do that for the, the TV audience that's, that's watching them. Right. So it'll, kind of be like a real-time Photoshop to like lower their voice pitch or whatever makes them more credible. Right. Right. So basically folks, what we're saying is that we're available for hire for any of the campaigns who want to win. We have an unexploited gap that no one else realizes. And basically if you want to win the presidential election this year, we are your secret weapon and we are available uh, at very, very high rates, but we are available. I just want to make that, make that known. So, uh, all right, let's let's think more about other implications that we might see, because we were talking about this before. So, and we will get to some of your questions, which look really interesting. Oh, um, yeah. In, in a few minutes. Yeah, especially, especially if you super chat that baby. It's hard to keep up with these, but uh, that's one way to shoot to the top of our attention. So, we were talking earlier today about some of the kind of social implications, like how this would actually affect real people in their everyday lives. And we were talking about scenarios in which deep fakes get integrated with things like AR technology. So if we have our glasses on, which have cameras and are connected to Wi-Fi and all of that, walking around the world, we can expect in the not too distant future, my glasses are going to be giving me real-time data on who are the people around me? What's their political persuasion? What is their credit score? Have they ever been involved in crimes? You name it, basically. It's sky's the limit in terms of the data that can possibly be used to augment our perception of each other and an evaluation of each other. So when I guess the idea is that if deepfakes enters into that circuitry, what's that going to do? How is that going to change our relationships? So just to kind of set the context for this, right, the, the whole um, the social implications of augmented reality will be th- will be, I think, entirely based on face recognition. Right. So as long as you're walking around and you've got your HD camera and it's it's plugged into the internet um, and you see someone's face stranger on the street, chances are at some point there will be a national database, maybe Facebook, maybe government, whatever that allows you to match their identity to that face. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to match any social media info that they're willing to share to their face. And potentially that allows you to, attach their criminal record or their tax records or their citizenship status or their credit score or their educational credentials or any other public information to their face. So that instead of walking, you know, along fifth Avenue in New York and just seeing a sea of undifferentiated faces, Mm -hmm. you could potentially see pretty much as much information about anybody as you want to dive into. And some people might be like, Hi, I'm single. You know, ask me about my my enthusiasm for for pottery, right? And then go up to them and talk about, you know, play throwing and centering. Or it could be like, oh shit, that's a registered sex offender, like cross the street. So that's kind of the context mm-hmm. for thinking about these issues. Now, I think when it comes to deep fakes, one of the more benign applications of this would be somebody could register, hey, if you're willing, I would like you to see me as some particular avatar 
as I'm walking around the world. Right. Right. So like I identify as a hippopotamus. So if you're willing to enable the avatar setting on your AR, then you'll literally see me as a hippopotamus as mm-hmm. I'm walking around. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that could extend to any other um, modification of your appearance of the sort that we already see in, in second life, the game, right? Right. Where everyone's running around with an avatar that has no relationship to their real appearance uh, or the movie ready player one. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even Snapchat. They have these filters nowadays, which are really good. And it's not Snapchat. Snapchat is not very popular among our generation, but for the teenagers, it's huge. They have pretty advanced and pretty impressive filters, which are basically augmented reality. So it's you, but you get to choose different filters where you look up, you know, an animal or something like this. And it's actually like surprisingly smooth. And this is very popular among, mm-hmm. among the teenagers. So they're kind of already a step ahead, I think. Yeah. And yeah. So if you're on Grinder, you'll have a Gavitar <laughs> rather than an Avatar. Okay. right so there but there's this conflict right between the viewer's interest in knowing the truth and the person projecting their identity interested in you know uh presenting that in in different types of creative ways so i guess we can imagine one way that deep fakes kind of enters this equation is you can imagine people using consumer technology to basically create their own deep fakes and then running it through their their ar that's perceived by other people kind of like what you're saying, basically. But you're also going to see technology that is going to detect what's true and what's fake, right? So if I'm really interested in knowing the truth about things, I might be able to buy an, ex- an expensive, you know, sophisticated software update for my AR, which detects and gets, you know, erases, let's say, that the the deep fake being proposed by the other by the other system. So do you think that there's going to be this kind of uh, escalation or arms race between these different types of technologies. That, oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, it, I mean, it'll be a negotiation, and there will be all, mm. all kinds of kind of consent issues, right? You know. Um, now, of course, hopefully, if you have your your AR glasses, you you should, in principle, be able to have total control over what you're seeing, and you should only display stuff about other people that you consent to to seeing. Right. So you should be able to shut off anything you don't you don't want to see. Um, now, whether somebody else can shut off information about them being displayed seems unlikely. Mm. Like given the face recognition abilities, they would pretty much have to hide or camouflage their facial appearance in public mm. for you not to know everything that can be known given their appearance. Right. OK. So there's I think there's going to be that asymmetry. And, of course, there might be a lot of situations in which people want to signal, right? Just mm-hmm. like people invest money in buying cool clothes and jewelry and cars and accoutrements, um, people might be willing to kind of bribe others to see them as they want to be seen, to mm-hmm. offer, like, micropayments mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, if you accept my avatar, I'll give you, like, half a cent. Right. As I'm walking down the street. Right. And then people might not otherwise be, you know, willing to see everybody through their avatar. Right. Will realize that eh, I can make a little bit of money. So why not? Right. And you can even imagine subcultures emerging where people do this kind of collectively, not unlike blocks, you know, this phenomenon on Twitter where like you can download the, the list of people that someone you like has blocked. 
and you just agree to trust their opinion and you you basically upload their block list to your Twitter without actually going through and making judgments for yourself. You can imagine the same kind of thing. So let's say like, let's say for instance, trans people, right? Like trans people want to be recognized as the gender that they present themselves as. Um, so you can imagine them saying like, I, I want to be perceived as this gender. So I will give you like a, a little micropayment for, for kind of, um, you know, accepting the like permission in your AR app that will guarantee that I'm perceived in this way. Right. And then people who want to respect trans rights can join clubs where they basically say like, I'm going to commit to, you know, allocating this amount of money. And if you are a good person and you're politically righteous, you're, everyone should be a member of this club. If you're not a member of this club, you hate trans people. And so then there's like an economy, basically a monetization, a monetized version of the currently informal kind of social capital economy around these types of topics. Is that kind of how you foresee it? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to predict all the stuff that'll happen. I, I think basically anything that can happen will happen once you get this combination of deepfakes and AR. Um, and of course, to go meta, one thing that could happen is your own settings in terms of how you see other people. For example, maybe you hate Republicans so much that you just block out all Republicans mm-hmm. and you don't even see their faces, like in the White Christmas episode of Black Mirror, mm-hmm. right? Um but the fact that you've got that setting activated might itself mm. become public knowledge. And then other people would see you as, oh, Republican face blocker. Right. You know? Right. So um, there's a lot of potential for kind of mutual pressure and policing and training and incentivizing how we see each other. Right. That I, I don't think many people are talking about yet. Yeah. It's a really good point. Like, let's say I'm, a transphobic person or something like this. And I hate the idea that people are trans. And so I'm going to set my AR to detect people based on their biological gender that was assigned at birth based on like birth records or something like that's my, that's how I want to experience the world. That's what I think reality is. That's what I'm going to do. In some sense, you could say, Oh, this is like, you know, good for that person. This empowers that type of person. But based on what you're saying, you're absolutely right. You're going to then enter a database of the people who are insisting on seeing other people as their biological gender. So people will see that. And maybe then all people who have those settings on their AR become like social pariahs or something, or they get, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah. I mean, the potential for social stigmatization in public is, is just colossal here. It's not just a matter of like the registered sex offenders being marked as such to everybody who can see them. Mm -hmm. It might also be undocumented immigrants Mm. being flagged for everyone who's interested in knowing immigration status, it could be, you know, which people have collected uh, disability payments or welfare payments or any of that, or what's the balance of sort of how much this person contributes in tax versus how much they take from the government. Right. You know, you can have anything you're interested in knowing about someone that can be calculated from public records. Right could enter into this system and become a basis for, you know, either thinking awesome person, go up, shake their hand, congratulate them. Or it could be um, such a sort of perfectionistic way of stigmatizing people that kind of everybody ends up hating everybody. Right, man. The more I think about how this plays out, the more 
it seems clear to me that this is just going to be really accelerated ideological warfare because you make the example of being able to kind of identify and display in your AR system, you know, if someone is an undocumented immigrant, for instance, but at, at the same time, you can imagine teams of activists, data scientists, deep faking documentation, right? Deep faking yeah. uh, migration papers that make currently undocumented immigrants appear to be legal immigrants, yeah. right? So there's in every domain, basically, there's not an obvious or straightforward political implication. It's going to be this like arms race between different ideological camps. And it, one interesting question is to think about the social, political, or the even psychological conditions that are going to condition that are going to condition or determine who's going to be inclined to win under what conditions, right? So, in some sense, if you abstract away from all you know structural factors, it might just come down to who has the most data scientists and the most computational power and whoever gets started first is going to have the edge. But it's kind of also interesting to think about all of the different factors that condition that, right? Like maybe, maybe if your ideological camp is less scrupulous, you're going to be benefited. If you have like ethical scruples, you might actually be at a real disadvantage. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, of course, the main the main thing that'll condition kind of individual differences and is, is is just age. Like, obviously, the baby boomers are not going to adopt this very avidly. They're going to be like, "I'm fine with my glasses. I don't want any of that AR shit." And they'll be the first to be and, duped by it. And they'll be the first to be duped by the deep fakes, at least. Um, and then, you know, at the other extreme, the um, the Gen Zs, this will be a major part of their life in their twenties is this rapidly developing technology. And I think they're going to be not exactly AR natives. It'll be the generation after Gen Z. That'll be the AR mm. fake natives. Okay. But, um, and then there'll be the intermediate cohorts uh, like Gen X, me and, and millennials who will adopt this to some degree, but will still be a little bit kind of unnerved by it. At, at first. Right. So I think that'll be one dimension. The other dimension will be, of course, just general intelligence. Like how easily duped are you by anything? Mm-hmm. Um, smarter people will be a little more discriminating and discerning and, and, and skeptical. Uh, but that's not most of the voting population. Right. And it's not most of the strangers you'll see on the street. It will also be your ability to be an early adopter on the consumer technology. Cause even when it becomes accessible to consumers, it's going to trickle down in, in the population, right? In terms of uptake and, and the ability to actually creatively execute and deploy these types of deep fakes. So that's going to, that's going to cascade through society in a very kind of unequal way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you think there'll be interesting implications for mating? Is this something you think a lot about and you're quite an expert on? Yeah. So I actually did this essay back in uh, the year 2000 called moral vision that kind of lays out my, Mm. Um, impression of how augmented reality might change people from focusing on kind of conspicuous consumption Mm -hmm. to focusing on conspicuously ethical investment. And Mm. the idea was once everyone has AR systems and the face recognition is linked to their portfolios, Mm. where they're investing and how much they're investing and what their, their ethical investment criteria are, then you could literally see somebody else's sort of 
uh, holdings um, as a sort of outfit or an avatar or a hat or something. Mm. And you might start to judge them as, oh, that's cool. Like they have $50,000 invested in clean meat companies and that's cool. That's like pro animal welfare or, oh no, they've invested a lot in like petrochemical companies and that's bad for the planet or whatever. So that could be one basis for judging each other socially. But of course it would be super easy to take a, a dating app like OkCupid and just be able to display any information that you're willing to share publicly about your relationship status and your sexual orientation and what you're interested in and, and all of that. Or um, you could have a little interactivity where it's like, I'm wondering, I'm wandering around. And if somebody else matches me on some particular criterion or their match percentage is a certain minimum level, mm. then they can access even more information about me. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So then instead of just wandering around a sea of strangers where you don't know anything about them other than their physical attractiveness and their rough age, you could literally see everybody's kind of, you know, relationship status in much more detail than just, is there a wedding ring or not? And I think that could be a real game changer hmm. in terms of not just finding mates, but also finding, you know, friends and buddies and, and other folks who are into um, whatever you're into, axe throwing or MMA or Dungeons and Dragons, whatever. Mm, right. So I think it could actually revive um, the community and social networks and, and leisure activities. Right. In the long run, but there'll be that short run period of chaos probably mm. still. Right. Like, I guess you have to imagine that once deep fakes become available to consumers, one thing you'll expect is, Tinder, okay, Cupid is going to immediately fill up with fake videos, fake stuff, right? In the short run. Yeah, I don't know how that would that would work. You also, of course, have a, a really gruesome potential of sort of messing with other people's relationships if you're a sexual rival, right? To one of them, like right. creating a custom deep fake of them being unfaithful, right. doing something you know, ethically horrifying and kind of sharing that and then hoping it gets like it drives a wedge into that relationship. Right. But again, there's this weird dialectic that reemerges exactly here again, because once that becomes sufficiently easy to do, mm -hmm. then your romantic partner is going to have reason to not believe any evidence of you cheating. Right. Yeah. So in the short run, yeah, sure. Like, some enemy of mine can send to my wife a picture of me like fucking some other woman that never actually happened. And maybe in that short run, you're going to have marriages destroyed in this way because it's new. Right. But once that becomes sufficiently common or it only even happens, it only needs to happen a few times. Right. It becomes once an awareness of this technology emerges. In fact, it actually decreases the accountability on me in some sense, because what it means is I could go fuck some woman and you could even have video of it and you could send that real video to my wife and she's not going to believe it because there's so much of this kind of fake video floating around. So again, there's this really weird dialectic where in the short run it has one effect, but then once that, once it becomes well known, it actually has the opposite of effect of radically decreasing the, the, the effectiveness of that initial, that initial 
deployment. Yeah. yeah. And again, there's, there's going to be this gap between kind of seeing and, and, and believing where, you know, you've got some sexual rival who like knows that, Oh, you have a, a sort of fetish for some particular Hollywood actor or actress, right. Then they can make a deep fake of like you having sex with whatever, Jason Momoa or Anne Hathaway or whatever, and share it with your partner. And they might also know, Oh, that's just an innocent kind of interest that you have. Mm -hmm. We all, you know, idolize actors, but actually seeing it in front of you, HD, you know, it might have an emotional impact that kind of fucks with the relationship much more than the conscious knowledge right. would. Right. That's goes back to the point you made at the beginning. Yeah. The difficulty of updating. Yeah, that's right. Like how many deep fakes does a person in a happy marriage have to see, yeah. even knowing that they're fake before it tend before it starts to actually like really chip away at, at the love and the, and the trust. Yeah. So yeah, there's a whole rabbit hole we could go down about right. jealousy and jealousy management and, and poly, but we let's not do that here. Um, there's a there's a lot of questions we should probably yeah. Ben, what are the best think, questions so far? So it's your um, call. There were a couple actual questions. people are starting people are going to start wearing veils again. Yeah, I think that. Mm. Um. Of course, if this AR stuff becomes popular, there will be some per some people who love it, like the narcissists will love it. Like, yay, everybody can see me as my favorite avatar and it'll be like Instagram, but in real life. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be the kind of grizzled opt-outs who are like, fuck AR, I'm, I'm going to like wear some face obscuring mm -hmm. veil or mist or whatever. Face paint, yeah. Face paint that makes it very hard to do face recognition. Right. And then they'll be able to wander around kind of anonymously more or less. But nobody will trust them. They'll but, be like right. the pariahs. I mean, they'll be yeah. the, the, they'll basically be viewed as like street people, right? They'll be pariahs because you, you don't, you can't judge any right. cues about like who they are. So why, why would you trust them? Um, there's this principle in signaling theory that says, if you opt out of a signaling system, others will typically assume you have the lowest possible value mm -hmm. on the trait being signaled. Because mm -hmm. if you didn't have the lowest value, why wouldn't you signal? Right. You know? Right. Like if you don't disclose the amount of tax you've paid, you must not have paid any. If you mm -hmm. don't disclose your criminal record, you must have a record. Right. So it'll be very hard to opt out of this with, you know, the face paint. Right. Ben, what are the other good questions? We got uh, anti-robust asking, will in-person meetings become more important in business, hmm. dating, et cetera? Hmm. That's a good hypothesis. What do you think? Yeah, I could certainly imagine there will be kind of um, no AR meetings where everybody has to like right. leave all their electronics outside in a Faraday cage. Yeah. You know, and, and people just have to kind of show up naked in a sauna mm -hmm. and talk to each other um, precisely to avoid all this potential for recording and, and misperception. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Makes sense to me. 
What else? Someone's asking me if I ever talked about that app that was supposed to identify if your partner has been in any porn. I have no idea. <laughs> Oswald Spengler says, Justin needs to nod his head more. He's not engaged in the conversation. How dare you? Very engaged. Do you feel like I'm engaged? Yeah. I feel like you have my undivided attention. Yeah. How dare you, Oswald? <laughs> Fuck off. I mean, the Therizinosaurus is a little bit distracting. I, I, I know this. Um, I do not know John David Ebert, whoever that is. Yeah, he was on my live stream a couple of days ago. He's uh, a writer. He's actually a really cool dude, but he's based in Santa Fe. So I'm probably going to get together with him at some point. Okay. He's really interesting, like really smart, but eccentric, independent dude. Nothing else? Uh, here's another anti-robust question. Uh, will high-quality deepfakes swing the pendulum back towards centralized media orgs that can demonstrate trust and chain of custody on video and away from aggregation of distributed video? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Should, should we repeat it? It's a good question, yeah. Uh, you, I can yeah, bring it up. Right here. here we go. So, All right, so the question is, Will high-quality deepfakes swing the pendulum back towards centralized media orgs that can demonstrate trust and chain of custody on video and away from aggregation of distributed video? Well, it's a good question. There's a lot to pick apart there. I mean, one immediate answer that comes to my mind is yes to the part about privileging those who can demonstrate trust and chain of custody. I think I definitely see that playing out as deepfakes escalate your ability to authentic, you know, to verify authentic video output is going, that's going to uh, be really important. And to the degree you're able to do that, you will probably rise to the top of influence and attention. But I don't necessarily buy that it's going to necessarily be centralized media organizations that are necessarily going to have the head start on that. Because it, in my opinion, honestly, that it seems to me like the mainstream centralized media organizations are actually like behind, behind the times on a lot of this. Like I, I can imagine kind of hacker collectives working in the shadows right now that we don't even know about being way more advanced on these fronts than like CNN would be. So I could imagine massive disruption and the people that are the, the organizations we currently see as like centralized media organizations are actually supplanted by a, their failure to update to this technology. And you actually, I can imagine a large number of basically technologically sophisticated groups all being able to kind of rise to the top. And I don't see that necessarily being centralized, but how do you see it? Well, I think what will happen is kind of mainstream legacy media will assume that, oh, if there's a proliferation of enough deep fakes everywhere, that makes our credibility even more valuable and people will turn to us because they know they can't trust anything else. Mm -hmm. And then they'll have this sort of chain of custody apps that, you know, guarantee, we hope, um, through through blockchain or whatever, that the provenance of this video is trustworthy. Um, and they'll probably then overestimate how much of an advantage that gives them. Hmm. It'll be a transient advantage because other people will then get that same technology pretty quickly. So the sort of independent you know, YouTube journalists who wander around and cover politics and protests and all of that will also have that chain of custody 
app that'll say this really is, mm-hmm. you know, live from whatever Portland Antifa protest. Right. And this really is me and here are the GPS coordinates right. and et cetera. And I, then I think that'll level the playing field once again. Um, the problem is while all of this is happening, people will still have the emotional reactions to deep fakes that right. evolutionary psychology predicts. Right. And they won't be able to discount, you know, content that, that doesn't have this, this kind of provenance check. Right. Can I say the question again? I just wanted yes. to, because there were a few parts of it. I wanted to kind of sure. uh, disaggregate it a little bit. It's a really good question. Yeah. What about the implications for the, ag- for aggregation of distributed video? I mean, that's kind of interesting to think through. I suppose what anti-robust is referring to is something like YouTube is this aggregation system, right? So you have millions of people putting up videos, but the system kind of determines what rises to the top. Um, so is, is, is this technology coming down the pike going to some way disrupt that or feed into it? Well, you could imagine YouTube's algorithm favoring mm-hmm. videos that have a, a chain of custody seal of approval on mm-hmm. them. Um, but they might only do that to the extent that it makes commercial sense for them to do that. If only a tiny minority of YouTubers have that capability, you don't want to shut them out and, and shut down all the ad revenue that you would, you would get as, as Google slash YouTube. Right. I think one of the more likely implications, which is also one of the more severe and extraordinary implications is that as people are increasingly able to define their own parameters for what they want to accept as reality, as that becomes more refined and sophisticated, you're just going to see more and more fragmentation. So like right now we have this one, we, there's basically one website in the Western world for video called YouTube. There's just no reason why there would need to be one, why everyone who wants to watch videos of any type needs to be beholden to the particular algorithmic choices of, of the, of the YouTube. Um, so what you could imagine, I think is as it becomes increasingly refined, how people are able to kind of determine what they consider real, what they, what types of filters they want to allow on their AR, whatever the case might be, as all of this becomes kind of the choice becomes more decentralized. I think you're just going to see more and more fragmentation where people will opt into different aggregation systems because it's going to be increasingly easy to do that. So like we were talking before about block lists, for instance, I think like the Twitter block list and the way that that gets shared and people will just trust other people's block lists. That's a really low level initial kind of simple case study. And what I'm talking about where people are basically going to be taking all of their cues for what is reality based on their group membership. And I think once you play that out and you accelerate that into the future, that's just what that's going to mean is you're going to have, um, you know, thousands of different YouTubes that are basically defined by different uh, definitions of what gets, of what, of what's counted as real. Because, you know, another thing is chain of custody and kind of authentically verifiable systems. That's one vector. But before we get to that, it's going to be things like social trust. It's going to be like who you, it's going to be basically uh, trusted individuals are going to vouch for things. And that's going to send people further and further down these kind of polarized, like culture war lines. So I think there'll be a lot more of that before you have 
like really fully operating and widely distributed um, like verification systems. So my um, my girlfriend Diana Fleischman is watching and asking us to explain what chain of custody means in more detail. Oh, so sure. just as far as I understand it, the concept is you have a sort of digital validation of where was this video footage originally taken, like uh, geographically where, at what time, by who, with uh, a camera that had what serial number, et cetera. Any, any information that might help you identify the source could go into, let's say, sort of blockchain information that gets passed along to anybody else who shares it, and then it identifies who shared it, at what time, through what medium, and then what other third party shared it, et cetera. So the end viewer should be able ideally to check. I'm seeing this video. Where the fuck did it come from? Really? Mm -hmm. And then go back through the whole chain of custody of all the way back to the original video source. And hopefully at each stage, it would also um, give you information about was this tweaked, modified, filtered, deep faked, et cetera. Or is it the original raw, you know, unmodified footage? So I think that's the yeah, that's perfectly well put. Definitely. Anything else interesting, Ben? I wanted to say something about infotainment. Mm. So, you know, the the problem is with with quote news. What people say they want is accurate information, mm. but there's this whole kind of gray area of infotainment where people kind of sort of want reality, but selected or even staged to be extra interesting. Mm -hmm. So all the way from 1980s, you know, professional wrestling, which everybody kind of knew was fake, but they still were able to get into it emotionally. Um, all the way through reality TV shows nowadays, like hoarders or, you know, we were watching the one about the bounty hunter dog <laughs> and like, is it real? Is it fake? Is it staged? Does anyone, Does anyone really care? care? <laughs> yeah. And so you could have like Dog the Bounty Hunter made immortal <clears throat> in a deep fake form and people could just watch infinite numbers of takedowns of wanted felons and, and whatever. Um, and that infotainment space, I think, is where a lot of the problems might come up. Mm. Right? That is where the, deep, the, the porn deep fakes live. And that is where lots of other AR and deep fake technology might be, might have tricky implications because th th that's the zone where like, if people just want to laugh and have fun and be interested, they might just shut off their, you know, build their reality detection, their fact detection. Right. Um, and that might also be a zone where you could have culture wars and political wars played out in pretty subtle ways. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's almost certain is you're going to see increasingly extreme types of cognitive inequality and political inequality emerging out of this. Because in fact, the history of cable television is actually a really interesting kind of early warning sign for what to expect with deep fakes. There's a really good literature on this. There's a really good political scientist named Marcus Pryor who... Um, wrote a book called Post 
broadcast democracy. And basically it looks at the political implications of the rise of cable TV. Mm-hmm. And I think what he finds there is, is really interesting and useful for thinking about what deepfakes are going to do because it complements basically what you were just saying, Jeffrey. So mm-hmm. I'll give a quick uh, rendition of Marcus Pryor's findings. It's quite simple. It's basically with the rise of cable TV, there was a proliferation of media choice essentially. And, you know, before cable, it was, you know, the golden age of broadcast where there's only a small number of channels, right? Almost everyone, whether you were smart or dumb, whether you liked politics or dislike politics, you were more or less all exposed to more or less the same signals coming from the TV. With the rise of cable TV, choice proliferates. And what he traces very convincingly is that this leads to several forms of um, increasing political inequality, specifically in terms of political knowledge um, and, and participation also. So what, and and the reason is the mechanism is that with the rise of media choice through cable TV, people who really like politics and understanding facts and knowledge can spend all day watching CNN or something like this and getting tons of facts and knowledge and getting more politically sophisticated. Whereas the people who just want to watch cartoons can choose to only watch cartoons. The people who are, who are not that interested and perhaps are not that smart, they're not that active politically can choose to become even more detached from it all. And he finds that this, what this, what this does over time is uh, the people who would prefer to watch cartoons, they, they become less politically knowledgeable and they become less likely to do things like vote. Whereas the smarter people who are interested in facts and knowledge become even more knowledgeable and more likely to vote. And so I think you're going to see this exact kind of inequality dynamic, but on steroids with deep fix, right? Because it's essentially uh, not just deep fakes, but the suite of technologies that we're kind of talking about, right? Because it's going to just radicalize the degree to which dumber people who are less engaged or less sophisticated are going to be able to drop out all the more radically. But the people who are smart and want to pull the levers of, of politics are going to be able to do so even more effectively. So I think, honestly, the the prospects for extreme kind of like cognitive domination, I think, are going to become... Uh, exacerbated. Do you see something like that happening? Yeah, I mean, I should do my own video about about this issue at some point. But um, I think generally, any new technology tends to exacerbate um, life inequalities as a function of general intelligence, right? Because if you're smarter, you can master the new technology better, mm-hmm. and dumber people are kind of left behind. And you see that with the rise of the printed book and the rise of social media and the rise of financial analysis technologies, any, anything new and powerful will not get adopted equally by everyone. It will be adopted and used more, more efficiently by some people than others. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll certainly see that. Um, and of course, apart from influencing political outcomes, you also have the potential for people to manipulate financial markets with deep things. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were talking earlier about you could easily have someone who shorts a particular company's stock um, and then creates a deep fake that makes it look like that company is in deep trouble. And so the stock will go down and they will make a, a mm-hmm. killing. It could be a, a deep fake of the CEO reporting bad quarterly earnings. It could be a deep fake of some um, accident that'll expose the company to massive litigation risk. Um, it could be just uh, 
employees of the company doing something, you know, ethically repugnant. Mm -hmm. Um, So the capacity to manipulate public perception isn't just political. It's also financial. It's, it means basically the reputation of every individual and every group and company and political party is kind of up for grabs Mm -hmm. Mm. and subject to a, a, a huge new, um, technology of influence that we haven't seen before. Right. Ben, is there anything jumping out at you that's especially juicy for us to talk to or talk about? If not, I would say it's a pretty good opportunity to wrap the baby up, huh? What do you think, Jeffrey? Is there anything Let's else? Let's just see if there's a couple of, I feel like we've, we've kind of been not, co- not covering the questions as well as we might. So, um, Hey, do a super chat if you really want us to answer a question. Yeah, I know. That's why I have no sympathy. Let's see if an interesting one. Adam Green. What is it? Can you comment on the recent Deep Nudes fiasco in particular? Um, Software was taken down due to criticism. Will we see similar attacks on software? Right. Okay. So there's an app called Deep Nudes that made it easy to do deep fake porn. Right. And so there was public outcry that deep fake porn is a bad thing. You shouldn't have software publicly available to do that. Um, I don't think there's any plausible way you could keep that kind of software out of the hands of people who really want to find it. It's there's just too many servers in the world. It's too easy to find that, um, you know, there's the dark web. There's, I don't think it'll, You'll be able to choke this off at the software point. Mm. All right, this question is a little crazy, but I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by it. Is this a vector for world government? Whoa. Let me think how that would work. I don't see it. I, I see fragmentation dynamics more than I see kind of centralization dynamics. Who knows? Mm. It's obviously you know many grains of salt for these types of long term speculations, but it is fun. I imagine like war, I, I think the, the culture wars are going to accelerate and you're going to have more and more fracturing of reality itself. I mean, this is what I've been talking about for a while and I've been writing about. I see reality itself becoming increasingly fragmented. I don't see any of this leading to particular organizations or particular narratives being being dominant. I see I see this too. I see this moving towards people having more and more ability to select into the realities that they want to select into. I don't really see any integra- I don't see much integration tendency in, in any of this. But I mean, one thing you might get is you might get a period of disintegration and kind of centrifugal cultural forces because of this technology, and then everybody being so confused and mm-hmm. panicked and so little trust socially within communities that then there's a kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. And it could be a kind of Luddite reaction that says, this technology is bullshit. Let's get rid of it. Some communities might do that. Right. You know, freedom of association. They might go, let's let's rewind to before AR and just not have that ban the technology. Right. And then other communities might go all in and say, this is great. Uh, I don't know how that'll that'll shake out. Yeah, you could imagine there being so much frustration and confusion that there's a kind of like reactionary global totalitarian kind of movement that arises and says, 
you know, this is terrible. We have to basically assert control. And I don't know, maybe like the United Nations or some sort of like, you know, uh, influential international organization becomes the site of essentially like a kind of populist totalitarian. Yeah. Uh, like well, flattening of all of the chaotic different narratives. One way you could get to that world government argument is if you had kind of like the effective altruist realizing that, oh, shit, deep fakes are massively destabilizing geopolitically because mm-hmm. you could do a deep fake of, you know, North Korea's dictator or Xi Jinping in China or anybody else making apparently a credible nuclear attack threat. Oh, shit. Or a bioweapon threat. <laughs> oh, we're so fucked up. <laughs> you yeah. know, or Russia oh, or China or anybody else could have a deep fake of Trump making such a threat. Right. And then that could escalate. We get nuked. Very quickly. Oh, shit. And to prevent that, right, you could, that's called the, it would be kind of a deep fake um, omnicide problem. Omnicide is where you have a technology that allows any individual person to, to create kind of a doomsday right. weapon, like a, a bioweapon that could mm-hmm. create a global pandemic. So if you have a kind of deep fake omnicide situation, where deep fakes could exacerbate the risk of nuclear war um, or something else, then there might be calls for, oh, we need a, we need a world government to reduce that existential risk. Right. <laughs> so, I think that's an odd, I think that's a great place to end it. Unless you see any questions you want to take by all means. I got, there was one cute question about, um, uh, do you guys imagine you'll do an episode, if not a live stream, from a virtual world within the next decade? Absolutely. I love my backdrops. <laughs> and um, I think it'd be awesome to do a kind of uh, live streams where you have your favorite avatar and I have my favorite avatar and we're in our favorite digital environment. Mm. And, you know, doing whatever is fun and, and interesting. And I think the kind of incentives to do that on YouTube or other social media channels will keep increasing. And and as the production values get better and better, mm-hmm. you might reach a point where like you, you just never want to watch an actual human face. Yeah. It'd be so boring. On <laughs> yeah. Well, actually folks, here's the big reveal. You're watching a deep fake right now. This conversation never took place in real life. Uh, ben, our assistant is actually a very skilled data scientist and he whipped this up from scratch out of nowhere. Since I have so much video out there online of me, I'm actually a good candidate for doing pretty sophisticated deep fakes with Jeffrey also. So Ben actually was able to find enough video of us out there on the internet that he was able to generate this this live stream right now uh, from his computer. So yeah, you've all been deep faked. How does it feel? Now here's the thing. You might think I'm kidding, but how do you know? You don't really know. So it's up for you. It's, it's up to you to decide. Awesome. Well, think? I think that went in some fun directions. That was awesome, man. Yeah, thanks like for we thanks kind of, we kind of plotted out some of it, but um, I think we just kind of went with the flow of the the discussion and and the questions that you guys asked were were kind of helpful in you know leading us down some rabbit holes. Yeah, some good questions that we hadn't considered. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for uh, joining my live stream, Jeffrey. This was fun. You're very welcome. And uh, also, 
I got to say, please do subscribe if you haven't done so already. And uh, if you're interested, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, join my discord server. We can talk more about it. Uh, Jeffrey is publishing a book that'll be out soon. The link is in the description below. So it's only five bucks. So if you want to support our experiments with kind of independent digital intellectual production, uh, go ahead and pre-order Jeffrey's book. It's very likely to be good. I haven't read it all yet, but I trust that it will be good. So uh, yeah, anything else you want to uh, tell the audience or, or get in before we wrap it up? No, I'm good. Thanks, ben, for, thanks for watching, girlfriend yeah, Diana. <laughs> ben, any parting words? All right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jeffrey. And thanks, everyone, for watching. I'll see you around on the internet. Later. Excellent. Awesome. That was awesome. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.